pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk. I'm Elissa Branch, and this is Housing Wire Daily. This week's episode of our Houses in Motion series features an interview with Ken Johnson, a real estate professor at Florida Atlantic University and a researcher behind the monthly Top 100 Housing Market list. Using his knowledge in the industry and the data compiled from the list, Ken joins host Matthew Blake on the show to discuss some of the most overvalued and undervalued housing markets in the U.S. He also shares what it was like being in the industry in a pre-internet era and how commissions have shifted over the years. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Want to give your customers the streamlined mortgage experience they expect? Fannie Mae's digital mortgage solutions are fast, efficient, contactless, and they save paper. Our digital mortgage solutions provide efficiency for you, convenience for your customers, and deliver a great experience at every stage of the mortgage cycle. Own the mortgage experience with Fannie Mae's innovative solutions. Visit FannieMae.com slash go digital. Hello, and welcome to Houses in Motion. My name is Matthew Blake, real estate reporter at Housing Wire. Joining me today is Ken Johnson, a professor at Florida Atlantic University. Ken spoke with me about the research he does on overvalued real estate markets in the U.S. And we got into what it means for a place to be called an overvalued real estate market. We also talked about Ken's former life as a real estate agent and his view on how and why sales commissions have changed over the years. I hope you found this episode highly informative and at least moderately entertaining. Please email me criticisms, comments, suggestions for guests at mblake at housingwire.com. That's M-B-L-A-K-E at housingwire.com. Ken, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about yourself. Good morning, Matt. I'm glad to be here. So for the last 25 years or so, I, I, I've been a pure academic doing my research almost exclusively in housing and housing markets. Prior to that, I was actually a practicing real estate broker for a number of years, for a, I believe a little over a dozen years uh, from the early 80s into the mid-90s. So I've spent my entire career involved somewhat in residential real estate for almost 35, six, seven years now. Wow. Interesting. How how was the residential real estate market different in the 80s and 90s than it is right no now? Te- we did not have technology or the technology was was very slow. So uh, I, I don't want to bore people, but I would tell you that the baud rate on the connection to the MLS network was three, six or nine hundred. Uh, mm. So if it rained, you couldn't get into the MLS. You had to use books. <laughs> and so a lot of things have changed. Uh, but technology has been evolving and making the business more efficient, quite honestly, the entire time I've been in the business. Interesting. And so one of the areas that you do as a professor at Florida Atlantic University is that you put out a study this August on the most overvalued real estate markets in the United States. And this is a look at cities, metropolitan areas where the homes are selling for more than what you say that they're valued at. So what is your methodology in determining whether a home is overvalued and whether a market might be overvalued? Sure. Glad to discuss that. So what we do is we look at markets that have data 
from repeat sales indices. Now, there's uh, several indices that are out there now. Case-Shiller, but Case-Shiller only covers 20 markets. Uh, we also see the FHFA market, which covers up to 400 markets, um, but it only comes out quarterly. And then there are a number of the third-party information providers, the, the Zillows of the world, Zillow, Redfin. They all have some form of a repeat sales index. And we like Zillow for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's easy to access, uh, to gain access to and, and work with. And number two, it comes out monthly. So we feel it's wise to be able to, to provide monthly data as opposed to quarterly data, which we would have to be doing with some of the other indices. Here's how we calculate this. So we get data from Zillow for the last 25, six years on a monthly basis. From that, with these past prices, it's an estimation of price or it's the ZHVI price estimate. And we can actually build a statistical model to predict where housing prices should be today. Once we know what a price should be in a market today, we can compare it to the actual prices in the market today, the actual ZHVI estimate for today. So let's just say we had a market that today should be 100000 but we see that it's actually trading at an average price of 110000 Well, 110 minus the 100 divided by 100 is a 10% pricing premium. So the trend, the property is pricing above the long-term pricing trend. And we can calculate and estimate this trend through time. And then we can measure how far you are currently above or below that. Not only can we look at today's number, but we can go backwards in time and calculate where you were in terms of being either overpriced relative to your history of prices or being underpriced. So we can do this for roughly 100 markets. And so the statistical model as to what the home should be priced at, that's obviously factoring in tons of data about home prices, but like, how does it factor in, say, quirks of changes in demand? Like somebody, you know, some market has a job sector that might not have had before, or, you know, in the pandemic, like this idea People are moving to Boise, Idaho, because they want to be freer than they are in California from COVID restrictions sure. or whatever it may be. How does how does that factor in? Sure. So we have a saying in statistics, and that is all models are fallible. So what we wanted to do with this is use a basic time series regression and believe, and, and, and it should be because the markets are efficient enough, that the price reflects the supply and demand in the market. So that is capturing surges in demand in, say, Boise, which is our most overpriced and hottest city. So surges in demand, changes in employment, changes in income. So the price reflects these things. So we're implicitly, not explicitly, modeling things such as employment, income, uh, migration patterns, et cetera. So we're looking at the price. And because the price, the Next predictor of price is the last month. The best predictor of the next price point is the last month, and so on and so on backwards. So is the model perfect? No, but really what we want out of the model is this order of magnitude difference between where prices are versus where they should be. The more important thing is from the trend, how far are the prices in your market? 
So if you know you're 60% overpriced, for example, versus 5%, that's one market that's tremendously overheated versus a market that at 5%, you probably don't have much of an issue going on right now. It's probably a reflection of the fact that we have really low interest rates around the country. So you've seen a surge in many markets. So 5 even 10%, I don't think that's much of an issue. When you start getting into these 30, 40, 50, 60, 80%, above your history of prices, something is fundamentally detached from the pricing mechanism. And typically from that, you will see a price adjustment. So if it's overpriced, you'll see prices come down. If it's underpriced, you'll see prices rise rapidly. Right. So I think what your study does show is that maybe, as you say, there's something detached where there might be something kind of untethered from sort of overall the fundamentals of the housing market. So taking Boise, for example, which was in the study I looked at that you did in August, I think was 86% overvalued. And I think that that was the number one. And you're welcome to talk more about, you know, whatever other markets you want to talk about, but using Boise as an example, because it was what you said to be the most overvalued market. What does that suggest? Like if I'm a real estate agent in Boise, if I'm a potential home buyer in Boise, does that mean if I bought a home in Boise earlier this year that I paid too much for it and the value might depreciate? What what kind of if I'm yeah involved in sure. the Boise housing market? What should I know about? Sure. So a couple of things. So we'll look at Boise, and our original number was eighty point six six. I think okay. it's right. It's migrated up to eighty one percent and change, and we're we're doing this monthly now. So I'll start with brokers in the area since I did this for a dozen years. I would be very worried about the future of, 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 of the market in terms of pricing. Housing prices don't grow to the sky just like trees don't grow to the sky. There's a point in time where prices can get just too far away from their, their, its long-term pricing trend. And you're probably there. in Boise. Now, does that mean Boise's market is going to crash and, 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 and just not be viable for the next 20 years? No, I I think it reflects so many people moving to Boise in such a short space of time and the fact that you're starting from such a low base. So you could see a fundamental different shift, a paradigm shift in the demand to live in Boise. I think that's going on. So the question really is, does it warrant an 80% overpricing of the long-term pricing trend? And my instinct says no, very little research has been done on this. But for the broker, I would suggest, well, you might want to always consider, and this is something I used to talk about when I was in the business all the time, is you want to diversify your business where you're doing both property management and sales and listings. So when the market goes flat for sales and listings, property management has always stayed very solid. So as a broker, I would always have that diversified portfolio because I think you're going to see a housing slowdown in terms of prices and the number of transactions in Boise. I think it will be higher than traditionally, but it will not be at this pace. For potential buyers, perhaps in Boise, it's time to consider that you might want to rent and reinvest. Um, not only myself, but a number of people have done research in this area where we look at three options. You rent a property and you don't reinvest any monies that you would have otherwise put in housing. You you basically don't say. Or you rent and you reinvest monies that you would have put into ownership, such as the down payment, the monthly maintenance, uh, property taxes, 
insurance, et cetera, you invest that money in a portfolio of stocks and bonds that are just as risky as the housing market. And the third option would be you could own and build wealth through equity. And interestingly enough, those last two are pretty close. On average, renting and reinvesting wins, and that's because the stock and the bond market on average for the last 30, 40 years has slightly outperformed the real estate market in terms of absolute numbers, not adjusting for inflation. We, we won't worry about that right now, but the stock market's outperforming the real estate market is mostly what's been going on. So you could rent and reinvest, or you could own and build equity. The first option is really not an option because it doesn't create much wealth. That makes sense. I think in terms of the long-term trajectory of Boise or a place like Ogden, Utah, a lot to unpack there, as they say. One really interesting point that you made, very tangential, but I just wanted to follow up on this is, so basically one of the conceits of real estate and housing is homeownership is important. Homeownership is good because homeownership builds wealth. Could you explain a little more what you were saying that investment in stocks and bonds might actually be better at building wealth than homeownership? Sure, absolutely. So for for the longest time, we were told, own, don't rent. Well, that's true if those are the only two options, where renting is not reinvesting any monies that you would have put into housing, right? The comparison has always been owning versus renting and not saving, or just owning and you're building equity. And the thing that always made owning so popular and a wise choice is this a forced savings plan. So if you own, you have to make that mortgage payment, which is building, it's taking your mortgage balance down while your housing value goes up at the same time. But we've never really considered A few people have, but in general, society has not considered what happens instead of owning if you had rented the same property or similar property and reinvested that money, which way would create more wealth? And on average, our research shows this, is that renting and reinvesting outperforms ownership, but not dramatically so. And you should just do one of the two. And so people would say, so why would I ever want to own? And the answer is you want to own because your kids go to the schools that you want them to. You get exactly what you want in the property and you you can change the property, add a pool, change the roof, do things that you want. The home that you live in is something more than, than a financial investment. It is where you raise your family. It's a consumption good. It's nice. It's something that you like and you enjoy. So housing is a little confusing, confusing in terms of investment. It is a necessity. It's also a consumption good. In that respect, it's very much like your car, but it's also an investment because on average, property values go up. And so historically, we've told people, you should own rather than rent. But more and more today, we're realizing, wait a minute, either own and build equity or rent and reinvest that money that you would have put into home ownership. Yeah. So what are the markets... We've been talking about Boise a lot, which has been getting a lot of attention last year. Any other markets you wanted to point out that are being overvalued that maybe people should know about? Sure. So we put out a monthly record of where the overpricing is, and it doesn't change that much. But the hotter cities would be places like Boise, Austin, Texas, Provo, Ogden, Phoenix, Arizona. 
believe it or not, Detroit. Detroit doesn't have much price growth on average, but it's growing a lot recently. Spokane, Salt Lake, Las Vegas, and Atlanta, Georgia. Those are the markets that range from Atlanta is roughly 42% premium, paying a 42% premium on average right now. And Boise is 81.28%. Right now in Atlanta, Georgia, the average home is selling for 42% above its long-term pricing trend, which is based on the history of data. So Mm -hmm. that's a little scary. Let's actually very quickly... I wanted to mention Phoenix because I think in the Case Shiller Index you were mentioning earlier with the top 20 cities, that has routinely been one of the highest price increases in the country. Off the top of my head, I think they've had like 25, 30% year over year price increases, like measuring, say, like August 2021 versus August of 2020. And Phoenix is interesting because I don't know that much about the 2008 financial meltdown, but I do know that Phoenix was really focus of that and a focus where a lot of home foreclosures happened. What is going on in Phoenix now? And is there anything maybe we should be concerned about there? And I think Las Vegas, you also mentioned, might be in a similar vibe. We could do both cities, Matt, very, very quickly. Historically, Phoenix has been a city where prices go up, they go down. There's a lot of variability in housing prices in Phoenix. And that's because of the rapid growth in population Uh, and the popularity of the area. So right now, Phoenix is trading at a 46.99% premium, just call it 47% premium. If we go back and we look at the peak of the last housing cycle for Phoenix, that number was 72.78%. So is Phoenix pricing high today? Yes. Is it high relative to the past? No. But you have to look at what happened in the past, and there was a significant decline. So from roughly um, May of 2006, with a 72, almost 73% premium, and the market bottomed in Phoenix around October of 2011, selling at a 30, roughly a 36% discount. Large overpricing, it fell significantly. So... That number's high for Phoenix. What's going to happen? I I don't know. But Phoenix seems to be a city that goes through these cycles. Matter of fact, our data only goes back to 96. But when I look at data further back, and Phoenix is one of those cities that that we have this information for, you can see they've historically gone way above their long-term pricing trend and gone way below. And one way you can think of the long-term pricing trend is, what's the average property appreciation in my market? So Phoenix has a lot of swings. If we look at Las Vegas, it's seemingly the the same issue. I've recently had discussions about Las Vegas and and you still have, and you have those significant swings, but I can kind of get you some numbers here really quick. Currently, the city, the metro area is 44, 45% above its long-term pricing trend. And if we go back, it was roughly 80% before, very similar to Phoenix. So you've seen these significant swings up. And then it bottomed out around 41% below its long-term pricing trend in June of 2012. So you just have this high variability in housing in those two cities. Yeah. What are some of the markets being properly valued right now or even perhaps undervalued? So some of the cities that are priced close to their long-term pricing trend, there's only a few right now in the top 100, but Washington, D.C., comes in right at about one half 
of 1% above its long-term pricing trend. And when I when we talk about cities map here, I'm talking about entire metro areas. So other areas that are priced close to their long-term pricing trend, uh, New York, that's the entire New York metro market that stretches out through the tri-state area. And in New York right now, you're slightly below the long-term pricing trend. In, on our, in our study, the most affordable or the area that you most would want to buy if you had your truthers, believe it or not, is Honolulu, Hawaii, which is coming in about two, two and a half percent below its long-term pricing trend. When we look into that, we think it's that's very pandemic related because the number of people getting into Hawaii just isn't as easy as it used to be. And the number of people with second homes there, you don't have the demand. I think that's artificial. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because I talked to a couple of real estate agents somewhat regularly in Honolulu, and they're saying that there is an influx, but they've also been hurt by the lack of international buyers during the pandemic. Yes. So maybe that will change. So let's do a lightning round of a few sure. big picture subjects because you've been a very good source in terms of providing a wide lens perspective to some of the most important issues in U.S. real estate right now. One of them, of course, is real estate commission. And there's been maybe slight downward pressure on commissions. Commissions average out to a little under 5%, according to real trends in terms of the total sale of the home split between the seller, the buyer agent, the Justice Department, as listeners to this show, of course, know, is investigating the National Association of Realtors and specifically investigating commission practices. What do you see as the pressure points right now of commissions? And if there are changes to the status quo, where might these changes be coming from? So a couple of things. Commissions have been migrating down for a number of years now. Hmm. People have historically said, oh, you're paying the real estate broker 6%. Uh, I have research that's 20 years old that says that number is actually a little bit lower than, than, than 6%. So, but what's driving commissions down more than anything else is technology and people's willingness to, to, to buy uh, without actually going physically into the property. I've been personally shocked by that because between 83 and 95, when I practice daily, I can't remember selling one home without people actually going into the home before they made an offer. So that to me is a, is a little shocking. So technology is driving it down. A lot of the services that you want as a buyer are now being provided through the internet. Uh, our degree of overpricing to one extent or another, uh, the, where we're paying, are you paying a premium or a discount in a city? That's a form of, of technology that people can touch that they don't have to ask the broker about, right? And there might be a question as to at that third party questions whether or not they want to ask the broker, is this property over or underpriced? The broker might have a reason to not necessarily dig as deep into it, say, as, as our study does. Uh, so a lot of these things are starting to be answered. Your mortgage questions are being answered online. Um, but I remember a day where I very often provided advice on, you know, when should you refinance? Is this a good rate? What has rates historically been? And then you can mathematically solve and show them that the rates are viable or maybe they're up or down. So I think the industry is doing less than it was before. So all of this is slowly pushing brokerage fees downward. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as to, I, I do want to, if you don't mind, can I speak a little bit to the DOJ? Yeah. The Department, yeah. Of, the, the Department of Justice has been part of my life in one way or another as a broker and now as a researcher for the entirety of time I've been in, in, in the field. Historically, the DOJ has, has worked with the National Association of Realtors on a number of issues, uh, buyer representation, agency law, and there's always been this ongoing issue of transparency and, and competitive markets that NAR and, and the DOJ have worked together and solved over the years. Now the DOJ has withdrawn from the latest settlement with NAR, and I, and I don't think that's good because if I work with you and, and you withdraw from that agreement, how can I trust you on future agreements? So hopefully there'll be some adjustments here. And they'll go back to some form of a compromise. I can tell you as a former practicing broker, I never once sat down at a lunch with other brokers and talked about my commission or how I did business. The last thing I wanted to do was discuss how I had a competitive advantage with many of my friends that were other real estate brokers. We never once sat down and conspired to let's keep commissions high. We didn't talk about things like that. One, we were worried about uh, anti-competitive claims, uh, always worried about um, the DOJ coming in and, and, and claiming monopolistic practices, uh, issues with the, the state real estate commission. This industry is highly competitive. And one of the forms of a highly competitive industry doesn't vary that much. It is reflective of what it costs to be in the business that has to be covered and the price that you've got to earn enough of a commission to cover your cost of operating to be in the business. And if it's five or six or 4%, that can migrate downward with technology, but that's got to help lower the overall operating costs too. I think that's staying about the same, quite honestly. So let's talk first about your point about the NAR, and then we'll go back to some of the real estate tech, prop tech stuff that you mentioned, because I think that's important because it gets us into the other thing I wanted to discuss, which is what's happening in Zillow right now. But yeah, regarding the DOJ and NAR, so what do you think, how do you think, and this is a question that I keep asking people, and obviously the answer is to be determined, but how is this affecting the everyday agent? Like the fact that, as you say, I think you've eloquently put it before, like the National Association of Realtors and Justice Department have had this sort of symbiotic relationship for decades, where basically the DOJ will say, we're investigating the NAR for the MLS, we're investigating the NAR for not disclosing buyer broker commission percentages, and they'll be, ooh, you know, DOJ is investigating NAR, and then Several months later, a year later, they'll announce a consent decree and life will go on. And it seems like NAR was always in front of the issue. And now NAR is seemingly, I mean, they admit that they're not in front of the issue, that they're just sort of caught off balance by what DOJ is doing. So that kind of like big picture thing that journalists like myself, like love looking at, it's always hard for me to know how much it's like affecting the everyday lives of real estate professionals? How, how do you think it might be? 
in the in the long run, I don't think this is this is a tempest in a teapot. It's not going to change mm. very much how brokers are doing their business right now. This is sort of like running a flashing yellow light at 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, you're not supposed to be doing that. A lot of people are, and the odds of you being caught of doing something wrong is one. It's pretty small odds of, of, of you actually doing something wrong. Also, the odds are very small that uh, the, the the amount of damage would, would be consequential that would lead to a lawsuit. And then the DOJ might take action against a single broker. It's, it's pretty, pretty small. You know, did we worry about anti-competitive practices? Yes. You know, and but what stopped me from discussing the way I did business, I didn't want my friends and my competitors that were other brokers to figure out how I specialized in the area that I specialized in. And I had, I had my ways of doing business and advertising and, and showing and, and going after certain clientele that I was in no mood to share. And so did they. So while the DOJ and NAR and what's going on was always kind of present in your mind, it just didn't affect your day-to-day operations. Anything else you wanted to discuss today? No, I, I enjoy this. Uh, I, I, and Matt, I thank you for letting me uh, or helping me expand my classroom. I, at heart, I'm a teacher. Even when I was selling real estate, I realized I was teaching the world real estate on a two-by-two basis, and I wanted a bigger classroom. And so being uh, on the podcast really helps uh, give information to people to make more informed decisions. I appreciate you guys talking about our top 100 housing markets. The goal is to help people make decisions about housing, more informed decisions. We can't necessarily do it for them. So this program really helped and I, and I, I enjoy it and I'm more than happy anytime to talk to you in the, in the future. Great. Well, thanks so much, Ken. And we will post in the podcast a link to the market reports that you've been putting out. Ken Johnson, economist, finance, real estate professor, Florida Atlantic University. Thank you for appearing. Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingwarrant.com forward slash membership. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great weekend. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk each and every day. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. We'll see you back here on Monday.